Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, we've all been there. You arrive at an unknown airport, probably on the continent, and suddenly your heart drops as the only thing between you and your holiday is a spiralling queue at the car rental kiosk. For some reason, it is just so hard to have a good experience with car rental companies. Well, my guest this week has a solution. His name is Karim Kadura. He's the co-founder of Virtuo, which is a tech-enabled car rental service. Now, I'll let Karim describe the product, but it's totally mind-blowing. And you can see that there's a huge opportunity to disrupt both the incumbent players, but also regular car owners. Um, Karim is actually a serial entrepreneur, having started his first business straight out of university. Uh, we discussed this and why he founded uh, Virtuo, the challenges he faced over lockdown, and the opportunity for the company as he sees it. Karim was great. He's definitely one to watch for the future. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Karim Kadora, welcome to the podcast. Karim, how did you start your career? Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. Um, I think if, if you allow me a digression for a second, it started off in 2008, where I, I started as a tech entrepreneur, really straight off the bat. I met my partner in 2007 at University in Paris, and the idea of our first business, I think, was born. And back then, we created a, together a, a website called Neo Webcar. And Neobcar was a marketplace that helped essentially car dealers sell their new cars online and buyers pretty much to find their dream car at the best price. And the whole idea came about from my personal background. Uh, so I'm a son of a, of a car retailer. I grew up uh, doing my uh, summer internships as a mechanic or as a you know, car salesman. And back then, I just realized that the industry was still very much traditional. In a way, when you want to buy a car, it's, you had to visit back then through the four dealers before negotiating a final price and, you know, and finding your next car. And so really back in 2008, we had this, this idea of, of wanting to help the industry go digital and accelerate the rate of business uh, while at the same time trying to find uh, the best experience for, for the end user. And so the company was instantly a success. We grew it as being, you know, leader in, in its space. So, you know, new cars online with above 2 million visitors each month on the website. And we ended up selling the company in 2014 to the used car leader uh, in France. And it was truthfully an amazing first experience. And so what happened from then on is as every entrepreneur, you're always on the search of your next big thing. And so we created Virtual in 2015 with the same partner. And so we've been together for the last 12 years and uh, more than ever, you know, hungry for more and, and excited to, for, for what's coming. And so take me back to 2014. You just sold your first business. What problem were you trying to solve with Virtuo? What was the, what's the value proposition back then? So Virtuo is a, a tech-enabled uh, mobility company. Uh, so through our app, you can rent a car on demand 24-7 from one day up to three months. And, you know, if you want to have the genesis of the, of the whole story, we came from the auto space. We had a tremendous, you know, knowledge of the car manufacturers, the mobility space in, in which they were. And so that sort of narrowed down our scope of ideas back then. And so virtual came about because, you know, my partner and I are Parisians. We live in Paris. We're, you know, what we call residents of a, a big European city. And so neither of us 
actually own the car. But the reality is that when you don't own a car, you still do need one on occasions. Simple weekend getaway, uh, holidays, business trips. And the problem of it all is that uh, you need to rent a car if you don't own one. And the whole experience of rental is just extremely painful. I'm sure you've, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Well, we uh, have actually. And just stay on that point. Why is it? Why is it that the experience of renting a car, be it on holiday or even at home, right. is such a, a horrific experience? I think the reason of it all is that it's a, um, if, if, if we specifically talk about the traditional car rental incumbents, I mean, the, the counter experience with the endless paperwork and, and, and waiting in line. The industry has never really evolved. I think it's um, sort of ingrained in its very traditional way of doing things, brick and mortar. You go to the counter, you wait in line, and then there's a, a long road of, of paper to fill and, and documents to show. And I think that goes back to their IT infrastructure that hasn't really evolved from 1980. And so you're stuck in a world where uh, no R&D, no innovation has really been put in. And at the same time, the whole business of it all, which happens to be an enormous industry. It's a, an industry worth a billion dollar worldwide. It's trusted by five big players. And so when you, when you sort of have very comfortable chunks of markets that are the hands of an oligopoly, mm. it, it usually doesn't really provoke any kind of innovation. Uh, you're just sitting and dealing with, the, with customers and thinking that, why would you do it differently if, if that works? And so, you know, that's for, you know, the traditional way of renting a car, but uh, truthfully, our idea back then is, okay, so that's one of the solutions of renting a car. There's other solutions which are more tech-enabled, uh, meaning car sharing on one end, and then you have peer-to-peer marketplaces that also allow you to, to rent the car. But we thought that none of them actually, you know, give us entire the satisfaction that we're actually looking after, meaning good value for money, convenient, available whenever I need it, and having the consistency of service. And so that brings us to virtual, you know, looking at the numbers of the, you know, mobility from one side and the current industry from the other side. And I think one of the aha moments in our career with Thibault and thinking about virtual was, was rather more, you know, let alone for a second, the rental opportunity. We looked at ownership and what that actually meant. And when you dive deep into the numbers, uh, you sort of understand that there's a problem. And uh, the problem of it all is that, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, uh, if you live in Paris or London or those big cities around Europe, you realize that there's just way too many cars. And so although we love cars for the freedom that they convey, I think for, for the last 50 years, we've been abusing those cars, uh, you know, and sort of our cities have been jam-packed with hordes of cars. And so to that end, we told ourselves, okay, maybe there's something that can be invented that is exactly at the crossroad of, you know, car rental and car sharing in a way. So bringing the best of a car while bringing, you know, the best of the tech and making sure that in doing that, we can create something that's sort of the future of what we call car ownership. We think that the future of car ownership is cars on demand. And so if I can allow your dog to rent a car whenever you need one, wherever you want to go, instantly, uh, with the quality of you know, a brand new car that you select seamlessly via mobile experience, and that you can either pick up next to your place or have it delivered to your door, is what car ownership should become. And so this is you know, really the vision behind it. It's, it's 
The rental is a, a beautiful opportunity, but it's just a means to a bigger end. And the bigger vision is wanting to put thousands of cars in people's pockets and not on city streets. And, you know, by creating a seamless mobile experience uh, and allowing to not suffer from the burden of ownership by radically giving it the ability to just rent one on the go is what we think will become the next big thing. And so just take me through the, um, the user experience with Virtuo. If I go and, and compare it maybe to if I'm renting a car, let's say from London, um, you know, I have to book it online. I have to turn up to the shop. I have to meet the guy. I have to do the various checks. I have to sign probably a paper form. I then have to, this sort of rather weird experience where once I've used the car, I then have to play sort of this game of signing it back in and making sure, you know, we haven't scratched it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What does, how does Virtuo solve that problem? Right. So you, you just, you know, you described a, a portion of the pains, but so in our case, um, it's simple as, you know, we've, we've wanted to streamline the whole process, right? So everything you just described. So it's, it's fairly simple. Uh, you download the app. We're going to ask you to register and usually in an hour, we'll be able to validate your profile. And once you do that, then you have access to a selection of different cars, you know, different brands, different categories of cars, and you, you just pick the car that you want. And once you do that on rental day, that's really where the magic happens. You're going to be sent a digital key and that key will enable you to have uh, full access to our cars and even start those cars. And so the whole, whole duration of the journey of the rental journey, you'll have your app as a key. And once you get in front of the car, you just unlock it do a damage report. That damage report is a photo stamped uh, based process where you can register any dents that you see if there's any. And once you do that, the car is ready to go and uh, you rent it for, as I said, from one day up to three months if you want, and you return it once you're done. And so either you can pick it up at a station next to you, so it's usually speaking underground parkings, or you can have, uh, have it delivered to your door. And that's, that's truthfully the, the, the ultimate experience. Do you see your, your business as a, as a sort of category killer? Are you sort of materially reshaping the market or is it becoming quite competitive? Are there more and more players you know, operating in this sort of tech-enabled car rental industry? To answer your question, yeah, we do see virtual overlap with other players out there. And, and of course, you could argue that we are in the rental space. Uh, but truthfully, the car rental players are sort of predominant in airports and train station where the bigger portion of our business is really done centrally in cities. And we do overlap with car sharing um, and, you know, peer-to-peer marketplaces for sure. But I'd say that, to be honest, we are, I think, in a league of our own, essentially trying to create something that's new. Uh, again, coming back to what I said, thinking that car ownership in cities will definitely erode in the next years. And what will appear to be the next big thing is on-demand cars. And so think of it as for years now, you've been used to, you know, streaming your music, streaming a movie. And we think that it, you know, cars should be made available exactly like other digital assets in a way. So, you know, don't own it, just stream it and play it on-demand. And so when you reflect on that and what it means, it obviously determines what you're going to do in terms of product offering. It is going to adjust and mold how you operate that business or, you know, a fleet operation business. And it's obviously going to shape how you market things and, and, you know, how you build your brand. And so 
I truthfully think that we're not to be compared with any car rental players and we're not to be compared with any car sharing. Although many of you know, our customers that we survey do come from either car rental uh, old established incumbents or car sharing companies. But I think in either of those cases, there's the, the reason why these customers are coming to us is they want to make sure that for the money they put in, they're provided with the best experience. And on that front, and just looking at the numbers, you know, our NPS or satisfaction scores numbers, obviously the degree of repeats in our business, we think that we are in a league of our own and we're going to continue pushing uh, forward, not trying to resemble to anybody else but us. You know, obviously it takes a lot of, uh, of thinking and passionate people around a, a mission that is bigger than mobility, uh, rather more centered around the impact that we can have and the peace of mind that we can give back to people by creating a new genre, a new genre in mobility. Just staying on that point, you're not trying to emulate anyone else. You're trying to be your own. I mean, what brands, and maybe not necessarily in your industries, but what brands do you look up to and really respect? And maybe the sort of philosophy from which you would want to sort of emulate? I think that's a very interesting question. We, uh, we obviously look at and learn from other companies out there. And one of the things we... Uh, clearly deem as very important is is having strong strong values and, and making sure that we represent them as well as we can, you know as, as as much as we can and so coming back to your question i think uh, we have fundamental respect for companies that have strong cultures within that are clearly creating experiences with having the customer as an ultimate obsession those who have the ability to create big innovation bets and those that have all of that that I just described while you know making sure that it's not just for for the business but also uh, to have a long lasting impact on people and on the planet and so having a strong culture uh, you know making sure that innovation is at the heart of it all and making sure that there's a bigger mission and willingness to impact uh, people's lives. And so there's there's so many companies that are strong on that end. I'm not particularly going to give out one name, uh, but that's what we're trying to apply internally for sure. And going back to your vision for the company, I mean, how's your vision for the company changed over the last five, five and a half years since you've been running it? Because presumably, you know, the technology that is available to you has changed a lot. Have you therefore sort of increased your value proposition? I'd say that the uh, vision hasn't changed. What it did is that it, I think it become even clearer over the years. So it, it has it has reinforced itself rather than changed. So that you know, going back to the genesis of virtual story, you know, both my partner Tibo and I, not owning a car and thinking that we could create something new, is still very much applicable today. I mean, the rate of of car ownership declining in in cities is the fact. And I think what really matured in our thinking is wanting to defocus for a minute from the rental business that is usually done in airports and, and train stations and focusing you know, all of our uh, energy on making sure that we're just distancing ourselves from the rental industry and trying to create something that is, simply put, a, driving, a better driving future uh, for ourselves, uh, our cities and the planet by providing each and everyone the freedom of driving but not the burden of ownership. And that takes a, a lot of, uh, again, thinking, but, but the vision in itself has stayed the same. 
And I think that the current uh, climate, uh, the current context of even COVID is uh, proving us uh, right in the sense that people are on the lookout for seamless contactless solutions uh, that have a deeper sense of purpose than just uh, business. Well, we'll come back to COVID because I know you've got an interesting story on how your cars were deployed throughout the COVID crisis. Earlier on in the running of your business, how did you allocate your time between sort of the day-to-day operations and the financing? And, and sort of, did you have to go out and with your can looking for financial backing or was it self-funded? So the natural thing that we did as a first step is uh, get financed by friends and family. I think uh, that's the case for, for many entrepreneurs out there. Among that pool of friends and family, we managed to also uh, uh, get money from business angels uh, that have experience in investing in tech company. So that initially gave us close to 2 million uh, euros as, as a seed round. Clearly, that was done on a piece of paper mm-hmm. <laughs> and cool slides of an app and a good market analysis on, on our space. And it allowed us to, um, to steer the company into a minimum viable product that had initial traction. And from that traction, we've managed to secure a first round of VC money, so Series A, where we collected $7 million from a UK-based firm called uh, Belderton. And those $7 million allowed us to then again steer the company uh, for 18 months. And then we, we got extra money from another round of investors raising uh, $20 million. And we're on the process of raising uh, another Series uh, C, which will be announced in the next week's. So that's for the first part of your question. The second part of the question is how do you allocate your time uh, between uh, running the operations and and raising capital? That's obviously uh, something that is uh, not easy to do. Uh, Although uh, in our case, uh, we're lucky enough to be uh, two uh, CEOs. Uh, So my partner and I are a co-CEO of the company. And as as your company matures, and that's your role as a CEO, is, is to make sure that you design an organization around you that enables you to get more time. And so usually speaking, rounds of financing take you, I mean, depending on the, on the stage or where we are as an A or B or C round of financing, but usually spans between three to six months. And so you have to account for, you know, that time and your agenda where you know at 12 months ahead that you'll be raising funds. And so you have to allocate, you know, the time that's necessary to do that. And again, going back to my duo with my co-founder, We've always managed to not overlap and, you know, make sure that each one of us have our share of responsibility. And so I I take care of the nurturing part. I speak with uh, investors, make sure that they understand our story, understand our vision, pitch them initial numbers. And then we agree to to talk when our roadshow uh, is starting. And my partner works on making sure that the financials are ready, uh, that the data room is... uh, is one click away uh, for investors. So it's a lot of preparation. And it's uh, when you do it, it is full time. And you need to uh, to make sure that you have the right team beneath you. And thankfully, in our case, it's uh, it's the reality. So what was the biggest step up in your view, the um, going from 2 million to 7 million or 7 million to 20 million in terms of, of sophistication of investors? That's a good question. As you said, the expectations are shift radically from one round to the other. And so what we expect from you in Series A is, uh, is to have a clear vision of what you want to realize. Not that it's not important for future rounds, but uh, as you progress, uh, vision is still heavily important and a strategy to execute that vision is, is heavily important. 
But investors tend to, as you mature, tend to look at what you've been executing. And so the numbers become way more of a, of a central topic of, of discussion. They want to understand you know, the history. They want to understand the financial robustness of your, of your business and how you're actually going to show that there's a clear path to profitability uh, in the coming years. And so all the, the rounds were, were particular in, in their own way. We've been lucky enough to have you know, success along the years to have been a, a B2C brand that people look up to. And so in our case, it was really about repitching that story and making sure that we knew how to also uh, tell our financial story. Because our business is, is pretty complex. You're, you're not just talking about acquiring customers and making sure that these customers are retained and well engaged and, and so on. You're also looking at a facet of, of your business that's heavily driven by operations where you have car-related costs, you have operation-related costs, and, and, and some are variable, some are fixed costs, some are semi-variable costs, and it's a lot of complexity involved. And so it's different expectations, and we've always uh, sort of managed to uh, speak their language. And contrary as to other businesses in which they invest, such as software and so on and so forth, it's quite of a unique business. So uh, taking the time to fundamentally explain the story and the vision, but also the financial implications is, is, was heavily important. Take us up to today, because the last 12 months has been, has been like no other, and it must have hit the car rental market pretty hard. So first of all, how did you navigate those choppy waters last year and into this year? And secondly, did your investors stand behind you? Did you have mm-hmm. to call upon them for more capital? Yeah. It is probably the worst year anyone can forecast. And so having this as a background and make, you know, if, if ever you've, and that's our case, managed uh, the storm, there's sort of a feeling that if you've managed that crisis, you'll be able to confront anything else in the future. So COVID is, is a worst nightmare for a transportation mobility company, right? So you're essentially asking people to, to stay home and lockdown is usually not synonymous with business for us. And so, you know, obviously business, some business have, you know, benefited from, from that. In our case, we had to brace. Although when you look at, you know, competitors or mobility companies in general, the traditional car rental industry has suffered looking at the numbers, you know, they've gone down 50% last year. Ride hailing companies have gone down 60%. Buses companies have gone down 80%. In our case, we managed to grow 10% and we've managed to double our operational margins. And so the question is, you know, how did we do that? Well, I think the big learning uh, from within or the big learning from, you know, what COVID has, has brought to the table is giving us a, an excuse not to grow and, and so focus on the rest. And so what I, what I mean by the rest is looking really quite carefully at every stack of costs and making sure that we, uh, we remove some of the fat, if I may say so. And so it was a tremendous you know, time for us to refocus on fundamentals of our business, making sure the unique economics were right. Some other thing that we did, and that's enabled by um, the um, model of our business, is that we had the ability to return a lot of cars. Uh, we didn't speak about how we operate, but we lease our cars to uh, car manufacturers. And we had the ability during COVID to return a lot of cars. So that allowed us to brace uh, for a couple of months and manage to uh, max out the utilization of our fleet, which is uh, and obviously the golden metric in our business. And from an external point of view, and if you look and if you try to 
take a second and understand what's the meaning of it all, you know, meaning of COVID on everybody's life. And so the realization that we all have, COVID is an indication that some things will change radically. Uh, one of those things is domestic travel is championing travel in general. It, you know, it's, it's bigger than international travel these days. And, and that's amazing news for, for our business in a sense that we are catered for residents of big cities uh, needing a car for uh, on occasions. And so our business is not centered around airports or train stations, although we are in train station and airports, but 80% of our business is done in cities. And so COVID has given everyone sort of the chance of rediscovering their own country. And so they're using us as a medium to travel. And so that has proven on, you know, last year, for example, during summer to be a fabulous accelerator of business. The other thing that COVID is synonymous with is everything going digital. It might sound very trivial, but we were sort of COVID compatible in a way. Our solution is mobile enabled. It's contactless. You don't need to meet with an agent. You don't need to stand in line. And that uh, is sort of, you know, put simply what we are. Uh, so people access cars without needing uh, to interact with anybody. So all of this were, were good news for us. And I think uh, separate ourselves from the rest of the pack. And uh, we'll remember it as, of course, for uh, the ambition that we had a year to forget in terms of growth. Uh, but so much has uh, come out out of it and will truthfully, I think, enhance our ability to create a mobility giant for the future. Karim, let's look to the future and let's get out your crystal ball. Where do you sort of see the business in five and a half years' time? Uh, success, is, um, I think, is driven by internal metrics and, and external metrics. The, the internal one is that we want to manage to uh, grow our, our, the size of our team. Uh, so that's you know, quadrupling the size of our team while maintaining the same level of engagement and, and a strong sense of uh, culture and purpose that we have internally. And you know, being driven by the mission, that's, uh, that's heavily important for us. You know, externally, I think it's, uh, it's a bunch of different things. We, uh, we've recently introduced electric cars to our fleet, and this is something we'll want to see grow in the next you know, year. So growing our fleet towards greener mobility and with a, you know, 50% of our fleet needing to be electrified by 2025. We also want to see clearly uh, people giving up their personal cars and that metric would be making sure that for 100 virtual users, we take 20 personal cars off the road to the minimum. And that's an important one. And we want to be all over Europe. As I said, our, what we're trying to build, which is uh, the, you know, the future of car ownership with cars on demand, has to be and will, will be met with success. I'm, I'm confident about that. And all the biggest cities around Europe. So we have 35 cities on the roadmap. We want to make sure that we hit those 35 cities. We're at 17 now, so we're halfway through. Uh, we want to be live in eight countries. And so that's uh, you know, uh, facts. Uh, now it's about uh, executing that plan and making sure that we're there. What does it mean then, Karim, for the, the car manufacturers? A lot of the questions on this podcast are, or we try and question, you know, which trends we've seen over the last 12 months are cyclical and which are secular. Are you of the belief that this secular growth of use, not own, is here to stay? And if so, how sustainable are the business models of some of the bigger car manufacturers? Well, the way we look at it is there's two relationships to cars. There's those that relationship to cars in rural areas is not going to change. If anything, 
it's still going to be strong. People will probably be needing more flexibility. But factually, there's, there's no other way around it. You need a car for your everyday errands, for, for going to work and, and so on. In central you know, areas and more in den- around the densest and you know, most populated cities around Europe, you look at what cities are going against. They're going against cars. They're making sure that we can build cities around uh, you know, residents rather than building cities around cars, like we've been doing that for the last 50 years. In our case, what we're saying is there's clearly markers that show that car ownership is declining that cities are still, you know, and making sure that that's their personal battle, you know, making sure the personal cars do disappear from cities. It is in a way a, a fundamental transformation for the industry, let's be very honest. And I think car manufacturers are, are clearly looking at it and asking themselves what can be done. We think that we can help car manufacturers creating a brand that a new generation of drivers will love giving them access to cars, not saying that cars are, are bad. It's just that we need to put cars where they belong, meaning on long duration travels rather than for daily trips. And that, that will mean, you know, cars are shared, cars that, uh, you know, less cars per head, but that's how it is. And I think we can't avoid the future and the future is inevitable. Uh, we are looking at less cars in cities and we're there to help professionals and car manufacturers to uh, help their cars meet you know, a new audience, a new generation of drivers, but that's how things are going to evolve. And that's, you know, as a matter of fact, what we believe will happen in the future. Well, that's an exciting future. Karim, final question. Um, and I ask a lot of people who come on this podcast, what advice would you give to the younger listeners? So the graduates and perhaps the analysts and associates who are just coming out of university, maybe looking to do something entrepreneurial like you did after university, what advice would you give to them? One bit of advice. So obviously I, I look at what I've learned over the years and uh, think having the right level of ambition, making sure that the market you go after is big, that you're clearly going uh, after something that uh, needs to be done or that is solving for a problem. Once you create your company and are lucky to have a team around you, I think it really ultimately boils down to different kind of things. Understanding your role as a CEO and the company, and when it's you know sort of time to give up on some of the tasks you you were used to do, and understand that you won't build success without uh, talented people beneath you uh, that you learn to delegate tasks to. So be clear on what you expect from everyone. You know, provide context, objectives, and also what you expect from you. I think that's uh, fundamentally important. Uh, define your own objectives. Get your culture right in the first days. Uh, culture is a, is a bill of rights for employees, and and without a strong culture, without a, you know strong set of values, behaviors, actions, then you will have people acting differently, uh, not understanding each other, uh, feeling undercut, or sometimes even political, you know, mentalities in the company. You want to avoid that. So strong culture is of essence in the first days of a company. And uh, I'd say um, surround yourself with knowledgeable people, uh, mentors, speak to other CEOs. I think the importance of uh, cross-fertilizing is super important. I've learned that over the years. Uh, You cannot know it at all, for sure. Uh, And so speak to people who have done it before you. Kareem Kadira, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Wineverse podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Karim Kadora. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like it or subscribe and let your friends know. 
The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.